Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the cross-asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team and Sarah's trusty sidekick. You didn't come up with one this week, so you just had to default? I'm out of, we've gone through Hall Notes and Laverne and Shirley. I'm I'm out. So I guess, uh, what, three weeks was tops? Yeah. Four weeks, maybe. Maybe maybe (laughs) next week. We'll get creative next time. Yeah, next week. But anyway, this week on the show, worries of a so-called second coronavirus wave are growing and questions over the pace of the economic recovery abound. With stocks now trading at pretty expensive levels, how worried should you be about a fast turnaround? Our guest runs a tail-risk ETF that gained near 30% back in March by investing in out-of-the-money put options. He share his thoughts. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Uh, and if you saw something crazy, by all means, give us a call on the podcast hotline and leave a voicemail. The number is 646-324-3490. And maybe we'll play your voicemail on the show. Sarah, I actually, I don't know if you realize this, but you cut me off before my crazy thing last week um, because we were going, we were all going too long. I think you droned on a little too long and, and had to cut me off, which is fine, which is fine. So that means you have two this week. That, no, just one because I couldn't find one this okay. week. So I'm, I saved up last week for the, this week. Okay, well, I apologize about cutting you off, uh, number one. <laughs> but it better be really good. <laughs> I think it was actually Cameron. His craziest thing lasted like it could have been its own podcast of talking about the box options. In, in, yeah. I, I, I'll have to go back and listen to it. But Anyway, uh, very happy to have uh, the guest on the show this week. I think a lot of listeners have probably heard of him. He's a uh, very prolific writer, has written uh, several books on the market, a lot of really interesting columns and blog posts. Uh, On top of all that, he's actually the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. His name is Meb Faber. Meb, welcome to the show. Great to be here, y'all. Thanks for having me. I also must add fellow podcaster. I know a little bit of competition here uh, in podcast land. But Sarah, Meb may be smarter and better looking than me, but he doesn't have a hip, millennial, uh, charming podcast co-host like like me. So no no pressure, but I really need you to lay it on thick this week. All right. We'll we'll try it out. We'll bring our best. (laughs) 
Ahmed, let's let's start with talking about that notion of tail risk and, and the Cambria uh, tail risk ETF. I, boy, this is the year, I think, when a lot of people uh, realize the value of tail risk hedging. Um, so I'm curious just to hear sort of how you develop that product. Uh, I know it relies a lot on, uh, on options, uh, uh, put options on the market. Um, and I was surprised to read in one of uh, your blog posts recently, uh, how heavily you are allocated, in your, at least in your personal investments, to tail risk and in Cambria as well. I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but at, as of that writing, it was something like 12% in your own portfolio, and as far as the firm's cash, it was, it was something like 25%. You know, and I'm wondering at what point um, do you sort of balance back down out of that? Do you sort of take the profits on that, or are we in the type of environment where it makes sense to keep a, a, a pretty heavy allocation to, to sort of a tail risk strategy. So coming into 2020, this discussion, had we been doing this, uh, say in December, would have been much more theoretical than practical. And uh, the S&P just finished one of the best decades ever, put it in the top five for probably the past dozen or so decades, ended the decade at, at a pretty uh, lofty valuation. But if you rewind about three years ago, we had written a paper called Worried About the Market, It Might Be Time for the Strategy. A little early, 2017, you had the first time in history, uh, the stock market went up every single calendar month. But we, what we wrote about in this paper was thinking about hedging risks. And we said the first way to think about it, and the one that we most traditionally think about is U.S. stocks, don't take the risk in the first place. That's the best way to hedge it. So if you have 100% of your portfolio in stocks, maybe you should have 80% or 60% and the rest in cash and bonds. Second, uh, it's great to diversify into other sort of investments. Traditional things like foreign stocks and bonds, real estate commodities. So in this paper, we looked at what historically hedged U.S. stocks in their very worst months when they were down like 10%, 20% in a month and during bear markets. And the thing is you expected to probably not hedge foreign stocks, real estate, commodities didn't historically. Uh, things you expected to help, bonds did, but they didn't have hugely strong returns. They're mostly flattish. Gold did a good job but not always. One time it was down 16%. And then the best during the bad times, of course, was buying puts. The problem with that is uh, the cost in the good times, right? Um, the same way people think about uh, car insurance or house insurance or anything else. And so we looked at historically how that worked with the portfolio. Now, walk forward to 2020. It's been uh, only six months into the decade but my God, it's felt like an entire decade already with, with six months. And you played out in real time uh, the playbook from this paper and the same exact strategies and ideas that helped historically going back 50 years helped again. And the things you expected not to didn't. Foreign stocks, real estate, commodities, remember, uh, traded negative at one point with the futures on, on the oil base. And so um, this concept, though, is... I'm a quant. And if you think about markets and optimizations and the ideal portfolio, it's so easy to do on paper. But when you play it out in real life, the very real pain of losing money, waking up every day to markets being up, down, limit, uh, watching overnight futures, that's not something most of us want to spend any time doing. And so this idea of adding something like tail, uh, you know, is, is almost more from the behavioral or psychological standpoint. And you noted my own personal investments that seem far skewed, larger than, than would ever make sense for anyone. In the appendix of the paper, 
we had an interesting thought process uh, experiment where we said, pretend you're a financial advisor or an asset manager or anyone involved in our world. Um, you're actually probably three or four times leveraged the stock market, whether you know it or not. You have your own personal portfolio. If you're an investment advisor or a financial planner, your clients, uh, their main investment is in U.S. stocks. If you're revenue based, if the stock market goes down 50 percent, your revenue goes down 50 percent. Uh, clients panic at the bottom and they tend to sell and just can't take it anymore. And then on top of that, if you don't work for your own company, uh, you're subject to layoffs and downsizing and recessions. So you can make the argument because of all your human professional and personal capital are invested in markets. And no one else believes this, by the way. So to take this for what it is. Uh, but the same way an airline company would hedge fuel costs or a, a multinational company making cereal hedges wheat, it makes total sense to hedge the number one risk in our world, which is simply U.S. stocks. And most don't. I, I do. I'm a little crazy. Um, but it's a way of if you can just get to the finish line, and sustain with the rest of your portfolio. If some things help you get there, to me, it's all worthwhile. And the, the whole whole goal of all this is to not get taken out of the game. If you're at the casino and you lose your bankroll, you can't bet. And that's the worst thing that can happen. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, on this show, Meb, uh, we really like crazy. Um, but like you said, I mean, 2020 has seriously felt like a lifetime. It's as though we have experienced this mini cycle in a way. And, and I find it very interesting at this point in time because I think the fragilities in the market have been very clear. I mean, you mentioned the days when every single day we were experiencing limit up or limit down. And I will be totally upfront. Last Thursday, it was uh, when we got that about 6% sell-off in the S&P, I was made to template out, because that's what we do in the news industry, a circuit breaker story, just in case that happened, because we were getting flashbacks of March. Um, but even, I mean, if you look at different metrics like the SIBO put to call ratio, I'm, I'm always so amazed at how extreme it is to the downside, that people don't feel as though they have to protect it against downside loss, that maybe people are a little bit scared of missing out at this point in time. I mean, psychologically, how difficult it is it to get people to grasp onto the idea of hedging against downside risk, especially coming off of such a forceful rally that we've now experienced. Well, there's two points uh, that I think you bring up that are, are really important. The first is, you know, if you have uh, a portfolio, 99% of what we talk about on these podcasts and about investments, it's the sexy part about investments. It's talking about, you know, what are stocks going to do? Where's gold going? What about inflation? What about the Fed? But the whole point is you should have a plan ahead of the time, right? Uh, the football quarterback, I'm a Broncos fan, Peyton Manning goes the line of scrimmage, uh, you know, back in the day. 
he knew all of his options that were going to happen when the defense lined up, right? And so not having a plan, and then last Thursday comes along, and all of a sudden the market's down 5 6 7%, whatever it was, that's when people start to just totally panic and use a different part of their brain. So we tell all investors, it doesn't even matter. It could be two bullet points. It could be 10 pages like an endowment policy portfolio. Have an investing plan. Write it down. Share it with whatever your loved ones, your neighbor, to try to keep you on plan and, and, and honest. Because otherwise... There's so much um, seduction to just do really stupid things. And we'll talk about this more, more in a little bit. Um, but the challenge also is that there is a, a pretty wide spread right now between what most of us are experiencing in the real world and the economy and markets. And I said recently, I said, look, if you were to go back 12 months, feels like a lifetime ago last summer, and say, look, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the economy in the next 12 months. Unemployment's going to go from 4 to 15%. Gold's going to be up 30%. Oil at some point will trade negative in the futures market. PMI will go from positive to negative. Interest rates, oh, by the way, at the Fed, go from two and a half to zero. Where do you predict stocks will be 12 months from now? And I guarantee you, no one, no one would have said up 10 <laughs> or about where we are, right? Even flat. Everyone would have said down 20, down 40, down 60, down 80. Um, and so that disconnect, I think, is, is very challenging for a lot of people. But again, going back to it, uh, the beginning of the discussion, having a balanced portfolio and strategies that you can at least simulate for the last 50, 100 years, despite the velocity at which we had the downdraft and the bounce, most everything's looked, I hate to say it, kind of normal. You know, Meb, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, is it safe to call you a value investor uh, if you were to sort of, you know, have to pick a, a real broad brush type of, uh, type of uh, label? The two major foundational <laughs> pillars that um, we base most all of our investing strategies on are value. So again, it goes back to the time of Ben Graham and before, so 100 years old, and also trend following. Uh, around the same time, Charles Dow, been around for 100 years. Both of those are sort of the yin and yang of our investment philosophy. We think both are, are equal contributors to a great portfolio. So it seems like a, uh, a good time to be bullish on value. Um, especially you look at the U.S., valuations are, are, are pretty high. Once again, the, the foreign overseas valuations look a lot more attractive. But it almost seems to me that in, in these times of turmoil uh, that we saw this year, it almost seemed like growth and, and sort of large cap U.S. growth, um, at least the, the main components of what you think of as that cohort, you know, your, your big internet names, your, your uh, alphabets, your Amazons, your Facebooks, they almost seem like a haven uh, in these times. So is it a good time to start looking for value and looking overseas if there is a lot of uncertainty about the, the macro backdrop? Or is there that risk that, that once again, uh, valuations be damned, people are going to want to be in those sort of mega cap growth names? It's always confusing to me, uh, or curious is a probably a better description, to listen to people talk about valuation because you always got to ask yourself, what's the alternative? And is the alternative just buying stocks without any regard whatsoever to value? Um, that seems like a really suboptimal way to invest. And it turns out that's what market cap weighting is. You just buy the entire market. The problem with market cap weighting, you get extremely exposed to big booms and busts. And so a good example is, um, we wrote a recent article called The Best uh, Valuation Spread in Over 40 Years. And if you look at market cap weighting globally, the U.S. as a percentage of the world right now is about half. 
But uh, if you go back to the 1980s, Japan was the biggest stock market in the world. And most PEs, we use a long-term 10-year PE ratio. We call it the CAPE ratio based on Rob Schiller's work going back to, again, to the time of Ben Graham. Um, it's a 10-year PE ratio adjust for inflation. But uh, the average over time is usually around 17, mild inflation around 22. In the U.S., it's been as low as 5 and as high as 45 in the late 90s. Massive bubble in the late 90s. Japan hit a, a bubble of almost 100 in the 80s. For the uh, older people on this uh, listening or the market historians out there, they'll recall every cover of magazines, every TV show, every book was all about the Japanese business model. It was going to take over the world. And it was really just the biggest equity bubble we've ever seen. We see a different flip-flop story now. And the seesaw has kind of gone the other way where the U.S. stock market is trading at a value of around 30 P.E. ratio, um, which is high by historical standards. It's not a bubble. It's not as crazy as it was in the 90s, but it's high. And future returns expected to be low single digits. Even uh, John Bogle said this before he passed away. And so it's more about expectations. The good news is the rest of the world, foreign developed, is down uh, around the high teens. Foreign emerging is in the low teens. And the cheapest bucket is around 10 and so um, you have this major, major discount, these alligator jaws spread between the U.S. and foreign. The biggest we've seen, except 40 years ago, is U.S.-Japan. Now, here's the funny thing. I guarantee you there's a million people listening to this that say, no, no, Meb, U.S. deserves a premium. It's, it should trade at a higher multiple, to which I usually respond, well, what do you think the historical premium has been? And the answer is actually zero. Over the past 40 years, the U.S. has had no valuation premium over the rest of the world. Um, and so it's only really this period post-financial crisis. And if you say, what is uh, U.S. stocks have stomped foreign stocks over this period? How much of that has come since 2009? And the answer is all of it. So you have this period that seems like it's lasted forever, but really has only been a decade. But it's setting its, this regime of U.S. outperformance is setting the stage for future underperformance, at least the rest of the world. So I'd say, yes, bearish on large cap in the U.S. Um, the good news is the drubbing in Q1 small cap value, which at some point was down 50%, created some wide disparities within the market. So you can now you can at least find some opportunities within the U.S., uh, but certainly look beyond your shores uh, to foreign, particularly emerging markets, small cap value uh, around the world. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I love the alligator jaw spread description. It really is a nice visualization of what we've seen. But how do you actually go ahead then and balance value investing 
with usage of trend following as well. I mean, I would get the sense that at least if you're thinking about one asset class in particular, let's just use stocks because it's easiest. If you're thinking of yourself as a value investor, but you also want to employ methods of trend following that at times that may be flashing different signals. Okay, there's a lot on that question. So let's start with what we call the global market portfolio. If you just went out and bought the entire world of public assets, what does that look like? It's roughly half stocks, half bonds. Of that, it's roughly half U.S. and half foreign. If you look at most U.S. investors' portfolios, it's dominated by the U.S. The stock allocation is up around 80%. The bond allocation is almost always 100% U.S., almost no foreign bonds, despite the fact foreign bonds are the largest asset class in the world. So at least getting back to the index starting point, the Vanguard diehard, you know, if you're a diehard indexer, you should have half in foreign stocks and half bonds, and almost no one does. That's particularly problematic right now because the U.S. is the largest stock market in the world, but it's also what the out of 45 countries we track the second most expensive. So you're putting most of your money in U.S. stocks, and many people in the U.S. are putting 80%. So being valuation mindful, I think, is important. And, and we tell people that are uh, crazy like me, you can tilt even further away from the global market portfolio into value, but at least get back to the, the global index. Because the same problem, this home country bias happens everywhere. My friends in Japan, Israel, UK, Australia, uh, everywhere put most of their money in their own markets, and it's a really foolish idea. Now you got a second topic, which is a little more esoteric, which is trend following. And it shouldn't be that esoteric because every single index that's market cap weighted in the world already is a trend following index. The only variable they're doing, price of the stock times shares outstanding. So you own more of Apple and Amazon as they hit a trillion, you own less as they go down. So you're already a trend follower. Most people just don't know it. Um, but trend following as a methodology has been around, again, as long as value has. And there tends to be a lot of misinformation when it comes to, to be investing in trend following. And so um, we've written a lot of papers on this and books, but basically you want to be invested in markets as they're going up and have some sort of systematic exit as they're going down. It's not going to protect you in the five or 10% moves, but it will. It's sort of the 40, 60, 80% moves, which we've seen in markets uh, in history. I shouldn't say it will, it should. And so, um, but that's very much a, a different psychological approach than just buy and hold. Buy and hold, the problem, the biggest problem with buy and hold, and it's totally fine investing strategy, is that everything bad happens at once. You got a buy and hold portfolio, it gets smoked in the financial crisis. It got, for the most part, very challenged in Q1. So it's very high, highly correlated to the economic environment, people losing their jobs, everything else going south. And so you're sort of doubling up on what's going on in the world. Trend following usually does well during those periods and for most part did a good job this year. Problem with trend following is the other periods. Um, for the most of the 2000, uh, the aughts, the, or sorry, the 2010s, um, trend following wasn't great. Fantastic during the financial crisis. The biggest problem with trend following is you look different. And usually it's, it's not um, greed or fear, you know, Buffett says, that really drives markets. It's envy. And so when the market's up 30% last year uh, and all your neighbors are talking about vacations and buying new cars and houses, et cetera, <laughs> Uh, a strategy like trend following that may have lagged is hard uh, to keep up with, particularly because those can go, I don't know, two, three, four, five, ten 10 years uh, uh, with some disparity in return. So we like to have both. It's sort of a yin yang. We probably put more in trend following than any advisor in the country, but we like to go half and half. Technical term, we, we like to call go going halvesies. <laughs> to use the jargon. 
to use the industry mm -hmm. jargon. Sorry, you are a true Florida woman for picking up on that alligator reference there. I, I, uh, your true colors coming out there. We had an alligator behind our house supposedly the other week. So uh, alligators are front of mind, top of mind for me because I don't want to run into it. So <laughs> I'd wager you have one behind your house probably right now. If, if uh... I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but Meb, uh, you had a really interesting post recently uh, talking about how you invest your own money. And I think this is, you know, a lot of, I've seen a lot of these pie charts of asset allocation. I think yours is my favorite I've ever seen. Uh, because there's uh, some small slivers there, like uh, comic books, <laughs> less than 1%, I guess. Um, crypto, and your rationale for, for owning crypto is, I think, the best rationale I ever read. Yeah. It's basically, basically so that your, your crypto friends don't, don't badger you to death about owning crypto. <laughs> and and uh, I, I tend to agree with that, you know, own a little bit in case it goes up uh, a million percent. But the really interesting thing to me is the farmland at 36%. And I know you've talked about this on your own show a little bit, and you've written about the rationale for it. Um, obviously, for those of us out there who can't go and buy a farm, is there a way uh, to sort of get invested? Uh, or what is the optimal way in public markets to sort of uh, get exposure to farmland in the U.S.? So um, as everyone thinks about their portfolio, and this is what people spend like 99% of their time on, um, we wrote a book called Global Asset Allocation. It's free to download on our website. Check it out. Um, and we did a fun study where we looked at all the different guru asset allocations, endowment, risk parity, 60-40, um, permanent portfolio, all the way out, right? And we took them back to the 70s and we did a horse race and saw, said, how do these portfolios perform? Well, it turns out they're all pretty darn similar and it actually doesn't even really matter how much you have in these allocations as long as you have some of the main ingredients some global stocks some global bonds some global real assets the exact percentages didn't matter and over time actually what mattered with that portfolio the most was how much you paid to implement it so if you paid really high fees like mutual funds uh, really tax inefficient uh, fees you you removed any possible spread between the performance of the best and worst performing allocation so the whole goal with your allocation on the public side Put that baby on autopilot, let it be rules-based, let it whirr in the background, be done with it and spend no time on it. And I know a lot of people, that's not something they want to do, but in, in my view, it's reality. And so mine is actually modeled on a 2,000-year-old investing strategy, and it was in the Talmud. And it said, let every man put a third of their money in business, a third keep in reserve, and a third in land. And so that's what mine actually looks like. And so farmland, you know, again, that's something um, it's it's more uh, from, from my family. Uh, my old man's side of the family grew up in Kansas and Nebraska. So it's more of a connection to that part of the world. It has been an actual fantastic performing asset class over the years, highly non-correlated to everything else going on. The problem, as you alluded to, it's really hard to allocate to. Um, it's probably the single largest asset that's not included in the global market portfolio through public securities, the other being single family housing around the world. Uh, although that's starting to get um, securitized a little more. I think it's a big business opportunity, by the way, if you're listening to, uh, to come up with some <laughs> farmland ideas. There's a few portals uh, we featured on the podcast that, that talk about uh, investing in farms and in smaller chunks as well as private funds. Uh, I would love to see a lot more development there. Ours is really just because you can go right around on a, on a, um, <laughs> ATV and, and shoot guns and I don't know, play around. But, uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd think there'd be more REITs, uh, farm REITs. I don't know. 
There's only like one or two, uh, and would love to see people develop that. I think it's a, a billion dollar idea for the, the right enterprising uh, person. Who would have known that the Talmud had such great investing strategies, right? I know. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's uh, I, I hadn't heard about that. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, one more paper of yours, Meb, I want to ask you about before we get to sharing uh, the craziest thing in markets. And that is one of your white papers that you wrote called All-Time Highs, A Good Time to Invest, No, A Great Time. And you started off with this great Beatles analogy about uh, one records executive who basically turned down the chance to sign the Beatles because he said that groups were going out, especially four-man groups with guitars, um, and saying, well, the Beatles obviously did great. You can kind of apply that to the stock market as well. And I think it's a really interesting concept. And I was hoping you can kind of just briefly walk us through uh, the findings of that study and how people can actually apply that to their psychology and their thinking uh, when they're thinking about making investments. So what is that strategy? What would that say to do right now in, in this, these conditions? Well, uh, you can kind of walk around the world on all the different assets, but uh, foreign stocks, you would certainly be in cash. U.S. stocks, depending on the index and day and time of day. <laughs> I don't even know what markets <laughs> are doing today, but uh, this only looked at it once a month, you know, so it would be, uh, um, I, you know, I would be much more predisposed to the 12 month than the all time highs, like I mentioned. Um, and then others like real estate and, and commodities, depends on the commodity, but Again, it has a high correlation with our old paper, which just used simple moving averages. So it'd be as usual, it's a mixed bag, but you want to be invested in most markets most of the time. But again, the problem with this system is not uh, really the system itself. It's can someone follow it? And the same thing with buy and hold being so hard is uh, people are so tempted just to fiddle around and muck with it and, and uh, try to turn the dials that they end up destroying any potential benefit of it in the in the first place. So follow follow your own rules, I guess, is the bottom line. Sarah, you know the one rule we have on this podcast is you have to deliver the craziest thing you saw in markets this week. So, Meb, let's start with you. What is the? I know it's been a very rational, sane market these days. It's hard to find anything crazy. Um, I don't know if people can hear the sarcasm in my voice over that, but what's the craziest thing you've seen these days? As usual, I'm not a great rule follower, so I'm going to give you at least two. Uh, <laughs> good, the, good. The, the one was a story um, our buddy Jason Zweig had written at the journal where he said uh, the last person to receive a Civil War era pension, her name was Irene Triplett, just passed away. And it was for her father's service in the Union Army, which seems like such a um, impossible scenario. But uh, just as a reminder that, you know, history, particularly here in the U.S., uh, isn't, isn't as long as most of us um, typically think about. Second, that's that's amazing. Bananas, right? Um, you know, on, and then on the uplifting side, uh, we recently had a dive in the ocean to the the deepest and longest dive ever, which is cool. It gets lost in the noise of everything else going on. And then on the really depressing side uh, was we saw Fidelity publish some statistics about uh, how their customers behave during Q1. And there were some really depressing uh, realizations. And one that was the worst to me was that uh, their investors that were aged uh, mid-60s, 65 to 69, almost a third of them sold all their stocks in February oh. uh, to May. And, oh. you know, that just illustrates so clearly 
why you have to have some sort of plan, um, you know, and, and approach because otherwise it, when things start to go insane, it's, uh, you know, these, these sort of behaviors are, are hard to recover from. That's interesting. And, you know, and Fidelity gives you that sort of granular data of what their customers are doing to an extent. You know, the, the whole narrative we've heard, and, and Sarah's already written a lot, of, actually written a lot about this, is how these Robin Hood uh, investors seem to have been the world's greatest market timers. But that really goes to show you that that's not showing the entire uh, situation uh, of sort of the, the individual retail investor. That is that is sad. I'd love to know what that Union Army pension fund was invested in, though. Talk about no <laughs> pension crisis there, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they sh- should have bought a few stocks. It's, it would be, uh, be worth a lot of money right now. <laughs> All those old railroad stocks you bought back then would... Uh... Mm-hmm. All, right. All right, I'll give you mine. Mine's... Uh, we're giving a lot of props to the journal this week. Mine, mine's from uh, a journal story last week, actually, too. And it's talking about this uh, research done by some professors at uh, UCLA and, and Cal Berkeley. And they looked at the performance of analysts' earnings estimates when the analyst shares a first name with the CEO of the company. And crazily enough, if the analyst shares a first name with the CEO of the company, their earnings estimates are more, uh, more accurate um, than uh, someone without the, the same name. And, and I think one of the theories was that uh, if, if the CEO shares a name with an analyst, maybe he's going to be uh, more likely to, to take his calls and, and give him some heads up. I don't know how that all works with Reg FD. I don't, I don't know how that, uh, maybe this, this study predates Reg FD, but Meb, if you, uh, you find it's it. Funny, find it's funny. It's, that's a problem I would never have. I don't run into too many other Mebs. So I, I was going to say, if you can find a company with a CEO named Meb, I, I got to be a lot of mics out there. I should, mm-hmm. I should really uh, get my CFA and get into this. Uh, yeah. All right, Sarah. I think Meb gave us some stiff competition here with a uh, the last Civil War pensioner being paid. But let's hear what you have. Uh, what's your craziest thing for the week? So I'll say right off the top, I don't, I don't think I can keep up with that. So Meb, I'll give it to you. Uh, but <laughs> a little bit of self-promotion. I wrote a story this past week on the website robintrack.net. Um, really interesting story, but also just a little bit crazy. Um, the amount of interest this site that tracks Robinhood users is seeing. So before this year, I spoke with the creator of it. Um, Side story, he's 23, he built it while he was in college. Uh, Robin Hood actually flew him out to interview and he didn't get the job. Now all of a sudden his website's blowing up. Uh, but he said that before this year, on an average day, he'd get like two to 4,000 users a day. Now he's getting up to 50,000 users a day. He says that he can check um, the IPs of websites visiting and scraping his site. And he said there's evidence that hedge funds like DE Shaw and Point72 are all scraping his data. Um, so just pretty crazy the amount of interest there is in what retail investors are doing right now. Um, but just also that he's a 23-year-old guy who built this website in college, uh, didn't get a job with Robinhood, and now all of a sudden his site's blowing up. All right. So awesome. that is the, the self-promoteness thing of, and craziest thing of the week. I'll take it. I'll take pretty it. Pretty good, though. <laughs> pretty good. It was, and it was a really good story. I recommend everyone checking, uh, checking that one out. Um, but boy, I think we do got to hand it to Meb with the, the Civil War pensioner. That, that's a pretty good one. But with that said, Meb, we will absolutely give you the W this week. Uh, but Meb Faber, thanks so much for joining the show this week. 
It's been great. Let's do it again, guys. Thanks. Absolutely. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Meb Faber, is at Meb Faber. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gospore, and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.